say that Jesus descended into hell. I am referencing the Apostles' Creed. Now, of course, every time we do communion, we, we read the Apostles' Creed. And in the eighth line, it says, he descended into hell. And so that, that is a real controversy. I've heard that question a lot. Where does it say in the Bible that Jesus descended into hell? Well, we need to explain some things. So here is one of the answers, one of the verses that really answers it. It's in 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. And Peter writes these words. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So his flesh died, but his spirit didn't, which is the way you and I will go, unless we get raptured. And then it goes on. By which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now here it gets mysterious. Which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was preparing. Wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Now, this passage presents three important questions. And here they are. What spirits was Jesus talking to? When it says he descended and he, and he went and preached to spirits in prison, what, who were they? What were the spirits? And when did he speak to them? When did this happen? And what was the prison? Okay, so it's who, what, when. Here's the when. When once in the days of Noah. Now, we need to understand that when Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, when they all spoke, David, the Spirit of Christ was speaking through them. For the Bible says the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of prophecy. Okay? Because Jesus shows up in the Old Testament several times. And um, he was there. He was the rock that followed them in the wilderness, for instance. And uh, when Abraham had the visit of angels, that was a visitation. One of them was actually God, and I believe it was a visitation of Jesus, an appearance of Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. Okay? So when Noah preached, you know, judgment is coming. There's going to be a great flood. The spirit of prophecy was the spirit of Jesus. So when once in the days of Noah, Noah had preached for 120 years. Can you imagine that? A century plus 20 years warning them to turn. And there was a great company of people there that heard the message that Noah had to give. They, they all heard it. You know, you better essentially not turn or burn, but turn or drown. Okay? It was the message of salvation. Judgment is coming, cried Noah. And the way you can avoid it is to get into this ark. That's why we call Jesus the Ark of the New Covenant. Because there was only one way of escape from the judgment of God, and that was that ark. And there's only one way out today from God's future judgment, and it's the Ark of the New Covenant, Jesus Christ. The only one. It's the only way to get out. So you get in the Ark or you're out of the Ark. There's no in-between, no on the fence. You're in the Ark or out of the Ark. Now, this is exactly our message today. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that was the message that Christ gave through Noah. Now, that's when 
Now, secondly, what or who were the spirits that Peter mentions? The spirits he refers to were those men to whom Noah had preached, men and women and young people. They were the, the hearers, the recipients of Noah's preaching. That's who the spirits were that Jesus addressed between the cross and the resurrection. Having rejected the warnings of Noah, they died. And they descended to the place called Hades. Mark that word, Hades. In the Greek, Hydes. This is the prison to which Peter refers. Now follow me closely. Here on Wednesday nights, we learn. We're in kind of Bible school here. So let's learn some deeper things, okay? The prison to which Peter refers was Hades. And it has stopped on me. There it goes. Now, it's really the Greek word Hades, the same as Sheol in the Old Testament. And it's the place where the lost dead go when they die. But it's not hell. When people die without Christ, let's say today, where do they go? They don't go straight to hell. They go to Hades. Hades is not hell. I'm going to explain this more in a minute. Hades is what you you could really kind of call a, a spiritual waiting room. Not a good one. A spiritual waiting room. And that's where the departed spirits of people go when they die without Christ. In the Old Testament, when they died not having faith in God, when they died not having responded to God in whatever way they could in the Old Testament, they also went into Hades. It's a waiting room. It's there now. And it's filled with the spirits of departed people. Isn't that a great picture? Y'all look so somber. Ooh. It is somber. But it's not hell. That's not hell. The real hell, as we usually think of it, is a place of eternal abode. It's the lake of fire spoken of in Revelation 20, 14. When we think of hell, we think of flames, right? All right. If the real hell is the lake of fire. Let's read about it in Revelation 20, 14. Then death and Hades. Notice Hades as an entity is thrown into the lake of fire in the last times. When judgment finally falls and God brings judgment on the entire world and he wraps everything up, even Hades, that room, that waiting place, that entity is thrown into the lake of fire along with death and Anybody whose name was not found written in the book of life, although God never made hell, that is the lake of fire for people. Jesus said it was prepared for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire was originally made only for the devil and his angels. But then the fall of man came. And judgment. And the certainty of eternal lostness without Christ. Now folks, one of the real shames in our day is this doctrine of hell has been tossed aside. Good grief. That's like a doctor saying, I'll never talk to you about cancer. We must warn people about hell. We make fun of it. People say, oh, you're hellfire and brimstone. Well, you know what? If you read Jesus' teachings, he was a hellfire and brimstone preacher. 
No, 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 no. He was, a, he was a Lord of love. He was a Lord of love, but he was also a Lord of judgment. He taught more about hell than any person in the entire Bible. Now, I can't wrap my mind around hell, a lake of fire, forever. I can't. But I also can't wrap my mind around an eternal God who has always been and always will be, who never began. My mind pops when I try to think about that. Because we're stuck in time. Everything to us has a beginning and an end. We began, we will end. Everything around us had a beginning and an ending. But, but God never began. He created time. And I know it's a mind bender. So I can't think of there never having been a beginning. And I can't think of there never being an ending. And I can't think of hell. I can't wrap my mind around hell. But we don't have to. Because the one who saved us talked about it and assured us of its reality and warned us to avoid it. Okay? So this place called Hades is going to be thrown in the lake of fire. The lake of fire hadn't been opened up to do business yet. It has not opened up. It will not be opened up until the false prophet is put there. Are you ready? There's not one thing in the lake of fire yet. Not one devil or one person in the lake of fire yet. The first one to go into it is the false prophet. You read about that somewhere around Revelations 20, the end of the book of Revelation. But until then, there, there's nothing there. It awaits the final judgment. He, the Bible says, will be the first one, the false prophet, to arrive there. Now, so let me wrap up. Let me, let me just sum up the answer here. The answer is that Jesus didn't descend into hell. When Jesus died, said, it is finished, and, and in your hands, Father, I commit my spirit, he descended into Hades. And what he said to them, we don't know, but it says he preached to the spirits in that prison. Maybe he said to them, all right, I have finished the work of redemption you didn't listen to the preaching of Noah, which was my message through him. So I want you to know that now redemption is complete and you are cut off from God. I don't know what he went down there and said, but he preached to the spirits in prison who were there for their sin. Follow me carefully. But there is another side. And that is what Jesus called Abraham's bosom. And in Abraham's bosom, remember that parable where Jesus was talking about the rich man who died and he looked up and he saw Abraham and he started talking to Abraham and, and he, he, he could see into a place where the saints were. And Jesus said, you cannot cross over to them because there is a great chasm. Abraham was there. The saints of the Old Testament were there. So there is Hades where essentially the damned are. And then there is Abraham's bosom where the Old Testament saints' spirits went when they died. Now, when Jesus resurrected, it says he took captivity captive. What did he do? He preached to the spirits 
who heard Noah's message, but then he went to Abraham's bosom and delivered all of the spirits of the righteous saints out of there and carry them into glory. That's what happened. Now, that's powerful stuff. That's, that beats Steven Spielberg all over the place. He said, well, Pastor Jeff, are those, are those, those people still down there in Hades? They're still there. Look, death and hell, it says the great white throne judgment, it says death and hell will spew up the dead that are in them and they will be brought before the judgment seat of God and they will be judged according to their names not being in the book of life. What spews them up? It says the sea gave up the dead that were in them and death and Hades give up the dead that are in them. So Hades relinquishes the spirits that are held prisoner there now so they can go to judgment. Wow. That's heavy stuff. But that's what the Bible says. Now, you see what I was saying? I can't answer these in two or three sentences. That's a great question. Everybody clear on it? Say amen. All right. Now, here's the second question. Since the Bible is written by men on earth, how do we know it's from God and not miswritten or changed along the way? Great question. I hear it all the time. Is why a lot of people don't believe in God because they doubt the Bible. Oh, it's just, a, it's just another book. It's not just another book. Let me answer it. I want to give you five reasons to affirm the Bible is the word of God. You know, if, if I want to leave anything with you from my ministry, one of the things I want to leave with you is total confidence in the book you hold in your hand. It's the word of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And you don't have to be, listen, you know, our culture says, if you really believe that, you're kind of dumb and stupid or unlearned or, or from Arkansas. I don't mean that bad. I'm just saying that's what they say. If you're from Arkansas, I love you. I don't mean anything by that. You know, deliverance and all that. But, but here's what I'm saying. Was that terrible? Oh, I didn't mean for it to be. I am so naive with some things. Just forgive me. When my, secre- when my executive assistant and my wife are laughing at me, I know I said something. T- I missed it. Now, listen, they are the ones who are going to look foolish in the end of time. Because God gave us his word. It is an amazing book. So here's, here's five reasons to affirm the Bible is the word of God. First, I believe the Bible is the word of God because it's of its, are you ready? Scientific accuracy. I could take a whole Wednesday night to talk to you about all the misrepresentations of the early church and how the early church was the enemy of science. And because of the early church, man could not progress into science. And the early church brought us the dark ages and the dark ages were the ignorance that were given to us by the church and all of this Foolishness. I, would, I could take a whole Wednesday night to blow that out of the water. Do you know that science began because believing men and women wanted to understand the way God made things? That launched science. Now, look what the Bible tells us. In Job, one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job 26, verse 7, the Bible tells us that God hangs the earth upon what? Shout it, church, so the radio can hear you. Nothing. Nothing. Job, 
wrote, God hangs the earth upon nothing. How did Job know the earth hung in space before the age of modern astronomy and space travel? I know how he knew. The Holy Spirit told him. Here's another one. The scientists of Isaiah's day did not know the topography of the earth. Men thought the earth was flat up to the time of Columbus. But Isaiah wrote, quote, It is God that sits upon the circle of the earth. Isaiah 40, verse 22. The word for circle here in the Hebrew means a globe or a sphere. Now I'm going to ask you, how did Isaiah know that God sat upon the circle of the earth? He knew by the Holy Spirit. If, if they had just read Isaiah, they would have gotten over the flat earth theory, or theory way before they did. Way before they did. So the Bible is scientifically accurate. Secondly, the Bible is affirmed through historical accuracy. Do you remember the story about the handwriting on the wall that's found in the fifth chapter of Daniel? It's one of the great stories of the Bible. Belshazzar hosted a feast with a thousand of his lords and ladies. Suddenly, a gruesome hand appeared out of nowhere and began to write on a wall. Just a hand. Remember, you ever see that movie, The Hand? <laughs> okay, that had nothing over the Bible. Because in the book of Daniel, a hand appeared and began writing on the wall. Now, Belshazzar had, had used some of the holy things of God to pour wine into and have his drunken feast. So he defiled the, the sacred things of God. His kingdom had come to an end and he didn't even know it. He was about to be taken completely over. And, of course, he looked at this and he's drunk. He looks at it, rubs his eyes, looks again. The king was disturbed and asked for someone to interpret the writing. Daniel was found and gave the interpretation. And after the interpretation, it says, and remember the interpretation, meaning, meaning, tekel, you, you parson, where your kingdom, you have been tried in the balances and found wanting. In other words, Belshazzar, it's over. You've had your last party. The jig is up. The curtain is coming down. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, put a chain of gold around his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler of the kingdom. And basing their opinion on Babylonian records, future historians claimed this never happened. According to the records of the last, according to the, the, the historical records, they had it first. The last king of Babylon was not Belshazzar, but a man named Nabonidus. Ever, anybody ever heard of him? I never had. And so they said, well, look at that. We see in the historical records the last king was Nabonidus. So this whole story about Belshazzar losing his kingdom in that one night is not true. It was not historically accurate. There wasn't a record of a king named Belshazzar that they had in their hands. In the meantime, archaeologists continued to do their work. In 1853, an inscription was found on a cornerstone of a temple built by Nabonidus, to the god Ur. Can you imagine a god Ur? Who's your god? Ur. <laughs> Who do you worship? Ur. Wow, that's inspirational. <clears throat> okay. But he, 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 so he inscribed on a wall written to the god Ur, which read, 
May I, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, not sin against you, and may reverence for you dwell in the heart of Belshazzar, my firstborn favorite son. They found that way later. Apparently, Nabonidus traveled while his son Belshazzar stayed home to run the kingdom. A lot of Bible critics had to eat their words. Warm crow. So the historical record of Scripture proved true after all. And this is only one of multitudes of examples of Bible history turning out to be true and all of these historians being proved wrong. You can trust it. You can trust your Bible. You can trust your Bible. Third reason, I know it's the Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, there is incredible, impossible in the natural, unity to the Bible. The Bible is one book made up of 66 books. And if you've been coming here long at all, you know that real well. It was written by at least 40 different authors over a period of about 1,600 years. In 13 different countries and on three different continents with none of the authors getting together and deciding what they would say that would agree. It was written in at least three different languages by people in all professions, and yet it does not contradict itself. That's a miracle. You're holding in your hand a miracle book. The Bible forms one beautiful temple of truth that does not contradict itself theologically, morally, ethically, doctrinally, scientifically, historically, or in any other way. How can that be unless God inspired it. The Quran, one man wrote, and it's full of contradictions. One man contradicting himself. This is 40 who never contradicted. That's powerful. When I open up my Bible, I open up, I, I tremble at the Word of God. I tremble at the Word of God. I tremble at it. It's God's word. And when you see a few of those prophecies come to, well, here's, I'm going ahead of myself. Fourth, the Bible is the only book in the world that has 100% accurate prophecy. Go ahead and look in the Book of Mormon. How many rewrites and revisions have been done in the Book of Mormon? Multitudes. Because as time has gone by and the prophecies that were predicted in the Book of Mormon didn't happen, they had to revise it. The same for Nostradamus. The same for anything claiming to be prophetic, but not the Bible. Not the Word of God. It has proven to be 100% accurate, not 99, 100. When you read the prophecies in the Bible, you, you just have to stand back in awe. That's one of the reasons I tremble at it. There's over 300 precise prophecies, 300 that deal with the Lord Jesus Christ alone in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament to a T. How do you do that? You don't do that. Only God can do that because he knows the end from the beginning. Okay? You start out to go towards a destination. He's already at your destination waiting for you to arrive. Now, To say that these are fulfilled by chance is an astronomical impossibility. 
Think about that. Now, finally, the book is not a book. The Bible is not a book of the month. It's the book of the ages. First Peter 1 25 says the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. It is the book of the ages. No book has ever had as much opposition as the Bible. Men have laughed at it, scorned it, burned it, ridiculed it, and made laws against it. They did it again last week in this so-called Cosmos series. Oh, my. What a bunch of junk. I'm sorry. I hope I don't offend you. That, that Cosmos series was so full of lies. Making fun of the Bible. Carl Sagan. It sure is quiet in here. Must have been some Cosmos watchers. If you didn't watch it, you didn't miss a thing. And I'm so, well, anyway. If one of the networks does something on the Bible, you can count on it. It's not going to be right. It's not going to be right. It's not going to be accurate. You know where you're going to get something accurate about the Bible? Here. Or or in some other church that hasn't thrown the Word of God out. But men have laughed at it, scorned it, burned it, ridiculed it, made laws against it. Geniuses, Voltaire, Rousseau. You can go through all the names. Nietzsche, all of the philosophical names that are so admired and lauded in our current universities and colleges. They, they made fun of the Bible, but the Bible has had the last laugh every time. But the Word of God has survived, and it's applicable today as much as it was yesterday and will be tomorrow. This is God's, let's hold it up, can we? And I want us just to say this together. Just, let's just read this together. You got your Bible, just hold it up. Can we just say this together? This is God's. Come on, everybody, follow me. This is God's precious, holy word. The word of God. Know it, believe it, it is true. Boy, that's a good confession. (coughs) Amen. Okay, here we go. No, you don't have to leave. Stay. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Is it right for a Christian to engage in social drinking? Now, before I go into this, this was one of those that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little mini teaching on, but there's no way I could cover everything. So we had something printed. Where are they, Valerie? Oh, you all have them. So there you have it in your hot little hands. All right, good. Read that, because that gives a much broader description than I can in the time allotted. But let me answer it here. There's two camps of thought here. One says that a Christian should never drink alcohol. The other says that moderation is the key. Drunkenness, they say, is what Scripture forbids, not the moderate consumption of alcohol. Now, let's take a couple of the arguments from the second camp, that moderation is the key. First, they point out that Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into wine. That's the first thing he did. He turned water into wine at a wedding. Therefore, if wine is wrong, Jesus would not have made it. All right, that's, you hear that all the time. And I understand how you could come to that conclusion. An example of this reasoning is the wedding in Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. Let's just read it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, dude, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, because then they don't know the difference, 
pull out the Thunderbird at the end. Right? Kathy's saying, what's Thunderbird? <laughs> and Valerie didn't know either. Oh, pray for them. Here, y'all put your hands up. Now, here we go. Then the inferior, you have kept the good wine, said, said the, the uh, master of the wedding, said, you've kept the good wine till now. Now, those who support the intake of alcohol suggest this must have been alcoholic wine, fermented wine. After all, it was a wedding, and every wedding has wine, right? But consider the implications here. Think with me. Let's think. There were six pots for Jesus to fill. Each of those would hold 20 to 30 gallons. That's up to 180 gallons of fermented red stuff. Wine. Vino. Right? That's enough for one major wedding party. Now, think with me. Are we to believe that Jesus made 180 gallons of a destructive drug? Come on, everybody. Think with me. Are we to believe that Jesus, because remember, at this wedding, nobody knew who he was. They didn't know who he was. He had just started his ministry. So do you think that they were intimidated by the presence of this man who they, they didn't even know? They weren't about to hold back and not party. And that's what they did at weddings. They partied like we do now. Okay, so are we to believe that Jesus aided and abetted a major drunken party? Would he do that? Can you picture the one who saved you doing that? And launching this new marriage with slurring lips and staggering feet, a bunch of DUIs on the way home? Can you? No, you can't. All right. Indeed, he would have been acting against his own word, wouldn't he? You can read these verses here. Jesus didn't make fermented wine there. There's no way. Because they would have grabbed those 180 gallons and said, whoopee, and started throwing it back and gotten wasted. On what Jesus made? Uh Uh-uh. If we approach this passage relying on the whole of Scripture... We must surely come to the conclusion Jesus made unfermented wine. Great, great, great juice that put Welchade to shame. That's why the master of the, of the party said, Wow, this is really incredible tasting. And the governor of the feast complimented the groom on its pure quality. And I gave you a bunch of verses to look at. Now, second. Some point out that Paul advised Timothy to stop drinking only water. Here's the verse. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, that's what Paul said to Timothy. A lot of people read that and go, oh, well, okay. So, even Paul told Timothy to have a little wine. But now, they contend, those that that want to go in in that second group, that this placed an apostolic seal of approval on social drinking. Well, Paul put his seal of approval on it. There it is. He told one of his own disciples to drink it. The fact that Paul instructed Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake involves several things. First, it suggests 
that the young evangelist had been reticent or hesitant to drink the wine prior to the admonition. Why was Timothy hesitant to do it? What, what were his, why was he not wanting to do it at first? What was he having a conscience problem with if all it was was grape juice? Paul had actually said to him, I want you to drink a little bit of wine. And he had, he had a conscience problem with it. So Paul had to say to him, look, you've got stomach problems and you've got a lot of infirmities. So I'm not telling you to drink it for its alcoholic buzz. I'm telling you to drink it as a medicine. And he said a little bit. So, so people who say, well, I want to drink wine because Paul told Timothy he can drink wine. Well, are you having stomach trouble? If drinking fermented wine was common for the first century Christians, Paul's exhortation would not have been needed. So clearly, first century Christians had a conscience issue with the notion of drinking wine. And Paul had to say to Timothy, look, use it for a medicine, not for the buzz. Timothy obviously suffered from a stomach ailment that required medicinal remedy. The water in Asia Minor, and this is a fact, could be very dangerous. So the young evangelist was encouraged to take a little wine along with his water. This text must be viewed in light of Timothy's malady and the conditions of that day. Paul's advice, therefore, no more encourages social drinking than with the use of a prescription drug affirm pot smoking. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go there for a minute. Now, now watch. There's also the creation argument. Well, if God made it, Why shouldn't I smoke it or drink it or shoot it? God made poison ivy. Have a smoke. Roll it up. Toke away. Just because God made it doesn't mean he made it for the purpose of you getting red eyes and a buzz head and loss of all of your motivation as a human being. Okay, I got it out. <clears throat> Some of you started, decided to vacation in Colorado. We went, and I'm going to tell you, that place is interesting now. Anyway, so do you see where I'm saying? And, and again, you're going to have to read what we handed out. I, we had that printed. It's free. Read it because it goes into way more detail than I can. Now, my personal conviction, if you want to know my conviction is that alcohol dulls your spiritual senses. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried reading your Bible after taking even a small drink? Have you ever tried reading your Bible after that? You sit there and you are not comprehending as if your mind were clear. I don't like anything that dulls me. Now, a long time ago, many, many years ago, I went through a very dark time. And I drank some. And if I could go back and undo that time, I'd give a year off my life, my natural life. And I am not talking to you out of my personal experience. But I'm going to tell you, I think in the long haul, in the bigger picture. You're why now 
I looked around me at that time, and I saw all kinds of preachers. I saw a lot of preachers that drank. I saw a lot of Christians that drank. And so I said to myself, Jeff, you've just been being too prudish. But I wasn't. And it was a huge mistake for me. Long time ago, before this church ever existed, so don't worry about it. You're not going to see me going down the highway. Trust me. But watch this now. Wine or any alcohol weakens your resolve to make godly decisions. That's big. That's big. How many people tonight in this room can look back at a time when you drank and you made some stupid, ignorant, regrettable, even maybe life-lasting decisions? Because your resolve was dulled by alcohol. And for every benefit you think drinking is going to bring to you, my conviction is it brings double the woes. All it takes is one night. All it takes is one night. All it takes is one drinking moment. And you can make decisions that you can't take back. <clears throat> if our youth group was in here tonight and they asked me, Pastor Jeff, should I ever drink? I would say, never touch it. Never. And you won't miss a thing. Not a thing. Well, moving on to the next one. When do you walk away? Now, this, this is really shifting gears. When do you walk away from someone who repeatedly hurts you mentally? When do you walk away? Forgiveness is there. Do you continue to forgive and keep going back for more? Okay. When do you walk away? Do you walk away? All right. Let's look at this. Everybody breathe deep. Lift your hands. Say, praise God. I know we're going through some heavy stuff, but we're learning the word here tonight. I love these question and answer times. I want to do it more. When a couple enters into the covenant of marriage, the Bible tells us that God joins them together into one flesh. That's not just a poetic statement. It's true. You're joined into one flesh. You become joined in a way that is really almost supernatural. Since Matthew 19, 6 says, This is Jesus talking. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one separate them. For God has joined them together. Now notice that Jesus puts marriage right at the feet of God. And Jesus also said, male and female. Now you say, why would you have to say that, Pastor Jeff, and ruin the whole thing? Because what is happening in our culture right now is a perversion from what God intended. But what if you just love each other? Love doesn't sanctify wrong. Love doesn't sanctify wrong. You say, well, I love this person, so we're going to fornicate. Because, because God understands that we love each other. Love doesn't sanctify wrong. Love, doesn't make, love does not make a wrong a right. It doesn't. The only thing that makes a wrong Right is nothing. Nothing does. The only way that you can involve yourself in a sexual situation is in line with the Word of God. Anything outside of that, and you're in trouble. 
Now, moving on, let no one separate them. Look what Jesus said. For God has joined male and female together. All right, so God did it. It was God's idea. It wasn't my idea. I wasn't there. It was God's idea. Now, look, marriage is intended to be a lifelong commitment, not a temporary solution for loneliness or other emotional needs. That was God's intent. I know many of you have gone through the tragedy of divorce, sometimes more than once. You will never feel condemnation from me. I came out of a family of four divorces. Four divorces. Bing, 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 bing. And so I saw the pain of divorce. I saw it. And, and I was in it. And thought it was my fault. A couple of them. A couple of them, it might have been my fault. <laughs> Kathy got a kick out of that one too. But God's original intent, that marriage will be a lifelong commitment, not a temporary solution for loneliness or other emotional needs. Don't get married because you're lonely. Okay? God hates divorce. That's clear. Malachi 2.16. And never intends for a couple to separate once they're married. That's his original intent. That's the original design. Because separation, whether it's legal or physical, involves the division of a married couple. It's not God's best. So we're looking at God's ideal, what he originally intended. This is not to make anybody feel condemned, okay? But his original intent, one man, one woman, for life. Not two men, not two women. One man, one woman. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 says, A wife must not leave her husband, but if she does leave him, let her remain single or else go back to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. So so that clearly is a word about don't separate. Don't, don't, Don't walk out on each other. That's his highest intent, okay? Separation is never an ideal situation. But because of sin, guess what? Because of sin, it is necessary. Sometimes. For instance, if a spouse or a child is being physically abused, he or she should immediately seek help outside the home and separate from the abuser until he or she has gotten help. It's always bothered me. When the whole thing happened with O.J. and Nicole Brown Simpson, it's always bothered me that she was not advised by a man of God to get out. And my understanding was she was actually advised to stay in. Now, I have personally um, overseen shuttling away a woman with her children into a safe place of refuge from an abusive man. And I have also had to protect a man from a woman. That's true. Beaten up on him. When it comes to physical abuse, and I've prayed a lot about this, I'm I'm saying this out of my own conviction. One time, you need to look at that real seriously. If you're hit, and I know there's levels of, of that, like, you know, a little shove or, you know, a pillow, 
But I'm talking about physical abuse. I'm talking about being hit. That to me, any woman ought to say, boom, 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 warning, warning. Remember that robot in Lost in Space? Warning, warning, warning. Remember that? Because, because if they do it once and nothing is done, they will usually do it again. But the same thing is true for a woman. I had to get this guy away from this woman who eventually shot him. Oh, we deal with all kinds of things in the ministry. Let me tell you. It's interesting. You see life in the raw. He lived because the bullet went just above his heart. And you know what? He went back to that marriage. Me, I'm in Asia. (laughs) Getting cosmetic surgery. (laughs) Wearing a wig. Oh, my. When physical abuse comes in or extreme mental abuse, I mean cruel and again, there's lines, and I know there's lines, and I, and I think every case is, is different to a point. But if there's just that, that cruel abuse, no love, you, beating you down, ruining you as a person, something needs to happen definitive. And in those situations, I don't think it's a sin to separate and get away from it until the person who is the abuser repents and goes through a long season of restoration and renewing of their mind. And it can be proven by the authoritative, definitive voice of a counselor that they are healed. I would never tell a woman to go back into a physically abusive situation or a man. I don't want to bury them. Marriage vows should not be taken lightly, and separation should not be undergone casually. The danger of separation is that far too many couples decide to have a trial separation. Here's the danger of separation. Well, we're not getting along. Let's just have a trial separation. The danger with a trial separation is if you're saying, well, I'm going to get out and see what I truly want in life, that's your first warning signal. I'm going to separate, see what I really want in life. Translated, I'm out. Translated, I'm going to find a new life. If you separate without any attempts to rebuild the marriage during this time, then you separate for the wrong reasons. You should only separate with both of you seeing a counselor, both of you working out, both of you seeing if there's any way it can be salvaged because you ought to fight with every atom of your being to save your marriage. Fight with every atom of your being. Never separate easily. Never divorce easily. Instead of reconstructing the family on a foundation of faith in Christ, these two, they drift apart until they eventually divorce, and, then, and you know the rest of the story. This is not in God's perfect plan for marriage and family, even if it has become acceptable in our culture, and it sure has. Shacking up, separating, you know, open marriages, which I cannot remotely comprehend. All kinds of weird things happening out there because we've left the Word of God. Okay? 
That book is our sanity. The Bible advises, live happily with the woman you love through all the meaningless, doesn't that sound great, meaningless days of life. That's Ecclesiastes up and coming starting the 26th. You're living a meaningless life. You might as well hang on to your woman. Life is such a drag. Ha! Okay, we're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks. Okay. The wife God gives you is your reward for all your earthly toil. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Now, we have time for, was that it? That was it. Well, that was good. We ended at a good time. Because I think I've given you all you can handle. (laughs) All right. All right. I would like to do the rest of the questions, um, and, and we will. We'll do this again. How many of you enjoy this tonight? Okay? It's nitty-gritty, isn't it? We got down, didn't we? All right, let's stand up together. <laughs> now that you've gotten down, let's stand up <laughs> together. Now, I need you to do me a favor. Next Wednesday night, I'll be here. Kathy will be here. But I'm bringing in a friend, a pastor friend. His name is John. And he's the pastor of Church on the Rock in Texarkana. I just spoke at his church a month or two ago. And John Miller is going to bring us a great, great word. His wife is a fiery missionary.